Hello, and welcome to Episode 6 of the Michael's Record Collection Podcast. I'm Michael Citro, and in this episode, I explored a musical genre that I don't normally delve into, which is the uh, post-rock ambient experimental realm. But there's an interesting new release by a project called Eternal Return that uh, I thought I would bring to you and share with you, which includes a musician that I am more well acquainted with, and that's Porcupine Tree bassist Colin Edwin. Eternal Return's once-only album was created by five musicians all living in different countries at the time before they got together in Germany to record the album. The core of the band is the long-running ambient duo called Dogon, made up of Paul Godwin and Miguel Noya. Together with Colin Edwin, Estonian guitarist Robert Jurjendahl, and drummer Miguel Toro, Eternal Return created a dreamy, textured post-rock treatise on nomadism, which was inspired by Talk Talk's later, more experimental music, and David Sylvian's solo work, Rain Tree Crow, and some Robert Fripp and Brian Eno collaborations. I spoke with Paul, Robert, and Miguel Noya about the making of this record and the themes behind it. So we're going to get into that now. I hope you enjoy this uh, episode. Here we go. Welcome to this edition of Michael's Record Collection. I'm joined today by a collective of musicians that are part of a, a new project called Eternal Return. You have a, a, new, a new album, Once Only, on New Dog Records. I am joined by uh, Paul Godwin, Robert, I'm, I'm sorry in advance if I mess up your last name, Yuriendal. Absolutely that correct. Yeah. <laughs> and Miguel oh, Noya. <laughs> and you guys are Pretty all good. in different countries. Exactly. <laughs> Yeah. And the other two members, uh, the other members of the band that are not here, also in other countries, five members of the band, five different countries. I know the legend has it, if the internet is to be believed, Paul, that uh, you and Miguel met at uh, Berkeley School of Music. But how did your collective uh, come together to form this this new band, uh, Eternal Return? Okay. I think Paul has the answer I'll, for that. I'll jump on that. Yeah. Yeah, I'll try for that. Um, <laughs> so Miguel and, I, Miguel and I met in the front row of the King Crimson concert in 1981, the reformed uh, discipline tour. And it's, I believe it's first show in the US in Boston. We discovered we were uh, students, both students at Berkeley. Sorry, Miguel. No, it was the first concert of the tour. Okay, there you go. <laughs> and we worked for 35 years. We've been working as Dogon. Mm -hmm. uh, in 19, in uh, 2015, did I get that right, Miguel? 16. 16. 16. Uh, we were invited to participate in an ambient music festival. If you can believe that that exists, there's an amazing one called Kukimuru in Estonia. And we asked our friend David Rothenberg, who would be a good musician to collaborate with if we were going to Estonia? And he recommended Robert, who also had roots in King Crimson and, and Fripp uh, philosophy and playing. And um, so we invited Robert to collaborate with us on the concert at the uh, festival. And uh, it was a very good uh, fit and collaboration. And then subsequently, we we started to record together remotely. And then uh, Miguel and Robert did a beautiful record together about the remote collaboration in a way called Power of Distance, which came out in last year, uh, 19, 2019. 
then we discovered that Robert had been playing with Colin Edwin, the bass player uh, formerly of Porcupine Tree. Mm -hmm. And they've done record together and uh, we really enjoyed that. And so Miguel was, as you might have read, is a nomad, uh, both uh, politically, economically, artistically. He's living away from his country of Venezuela. And uh, so uh, I think we got the idea, let's form a band, let's get, let's get Colin, and then let's work with Miguel Toro, another Venezuelan expat living in Berlin. Let's get the band together and book a studio in, in Berlin and let, you know, let's find these kind of creative, uh, progressive and ambient oriented musicians and let's put them all together in a studio and see what we can get. It's interesting that Colin Edwin, to hear him doing this type of music because, you know, Porcupine Tree, uh, you know, 180 degrees different from this. And so I kind of enjoyed, you know, like just listening for his bass parts you know, when I listened to the to the new album, I wanted to hear what, you know, am I hearing anything, any musical DNA that I recognize? Obviously, the music is so different that that there wasn't any similar sort of DNA to what he does in Porcupine Tree. Tell me about the challenges of coming together, all of you, and writing this and recording this, and especially, I, I think, did you do some of the, some or all of the, the work before the pandemic? It was all all done, uh, yeah, in twenty nine in twenty nineteen. Help me, twenty nineteen. It was uh, August and um, October twenty nineteen before the outbreak. And you guys had uh, so you, maybe you met Robert. In we did. Um, I thought maybe Robert, you want to speak a little bit about maybe his Michael's question about Collins playing and also his question about. Um, the difference in styles or how we create it maybe yeah what depends of uh, Colin's style it's very wide and he's really very <laughs> sensitive musician uh, because he besides uh, poker pantry stuff he has quite many kind of other projects let's say not so famous but say are uh, well, very much based on improvisation like x x y's heads i think with a legendary flute player and sax player this uh, Jeff Lee, uh, I think he worked also. His uh, don't remember the legendary band British, but uh, it was, I mean, a lot of improvisation and uh, kind of structures which uh, were not uh, familiar for Boko Pantry at all. And I know he plays also jazz, like like uh, double bass. He can go out and play in the evening uh, and jazz stuff. So I think he's a really very uh, very good musician and when we started uh, our album it, it was then I recognized that he's also a very good programmer so he's able to program all percussion stuff and very 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 well very human way I mean a very good touch and so so many things and he it's just and pers like a person he's very very sweet very nice to work with him so it's very easy He's from Australia, actually. So it's kind of we have we have so many branches in in this band. <laughs> yeah, I've forgotten to put Australia in the. I always yeah. forget. Yeah, we have. I know, and and we have someone from Portugal now. Yeah, so we, we cover almost the planet. 
<laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's incredibly international. It must make for, uh, you know, a lot of emailing, dropboxing files to each other, that kind of thing. Can you, can you kind of walk me through how you, how you composed, how you, you know, kind of got the music together before you went in to record it? Well, I, um, I basically, we knew that, or Miguel can talk about this actually, but I'll just yeah. say quickly that we, we knew the intention and there's some references, you know, in, in the promotional materials, we mentioned um, being influenced by some of the solo work of David Sylvian and also like Rain Tree Crow, which I never mentioned, but when Sylvian created a group after Japan. And then also, I think we all agreed in advance that we were influenced and enjoyed very much this, the late period of Talk Talk, the records like Spirit of Eden and Color of Spring, um, where Talk Talk began to explore a kind of jazzy ambient, but with vocals. I think we all agreed on that. Um, but Miguel can talk about the music and how it came about. And it, it really came about very late, right before we entered the studio. And we intended that somewhat. Miguel? Yes, uh, thank you, Paul. Uh, when Paul mentioned me, the fact that he wanted to produce a record in Germany, first in Berlin, for some reasons, I, uh, I said like, okay, so we started sharing some ideas. Uh, so we wrote a little bit of one piece and a little bit of the other one. We were kind of like casting what was possible to play. Uh, and of course we knew Robert and Miguel Toro, but we, we, we have never before done anything with Colin Edwin. But I expected to be like, okay, this is quite interesting. So, so we, when we arrived to Berlin, we had some small ideas. Some pieces were kind of like, okay, like the sky and Nomad were kind of like the rough skeletons were designed already. So they, they, they were actually finished, the structure and the form of the pieces were uh, finished after we did the first recording session. Uh, when, when we try things on the, on the band. And there was this idea of uh, the talk talk, of course, and the Sylvian influence. I think that was major on the vocal part of Paul, I would say. But, but again, working with Robert, that was natural. It was really organic. And the first session with Colin was like, oh, this is gonna work. Because we, we entered the studio without having like a, explain to the musicians what we were looking for, but just showing up small ideas. And the music came out as a total collaboration, I would say. Uh, there was no, I, uh, not uh, points about doing, you know, writing the bass or the guitar because we, we trusted so much what was gonna come. And in the end, uh, as, as I say, or we say, Paul and I would say, we share a muse and the muse show up in the studio. And then things flew, you know, they, they were fluent. We, we ended up mixing the, the record according to some suggestions by Colin that was kind of like brilliant ideas that like, oh, we should mix this in London. You know, I have these friends, <laughs> I have a studio in a boat. <laughs> so I, it ended up being a really fluent, uh, I would say like a really smooth project where, where things were played live. And that's quite interesting because, you know, when you're pr programming computers, you tend to overwork and stuff. And then, then there's like, a, maybe you lose the touch of the 
nature of of the, of the original music. We we've all been, especially Robert, and he can maybe talk about this. Um, but we've all been trading tracks over the internet, and uh, many of his collaborative albums, I think, were done that way. And we kind of were trying to not get into that during this process. But Robert, did you want to? Well, yeah, it's. I think uh, we, were, we were really lucky to make it because uh, <laughs> soon after that, it, it's a lockdown game. So not, not, not so, yeah, it's just quite there, close to the recording. So uh, actually for me, it was the last uh, studio session, like a big one, really. <laughs> All other stuff is just through the internet, which I'm done. Mm. Many things, but no, like, person to person, face to face, no, just the internet. So, uh, yeah, it, it's both, both ways are okay, but I think I, I still, I, if, if there's a possibility to work like in a real studio with guys and in the process, I prefer this much more, of course. And I remember this kind of uh, really nice uh, moments uh, and we started just to improvise. It was so nice how uh, Paul guided us. So just what to do, just very, very slightly. He walked to the, Colin was in another room, actually. We didn't see each other. This was also very strange, but, but I liked it the way. And Paul went to Colin and a little bit explained what to do, not much, a little bit, just a structure. And uh, then he came to me and also said a little bit of explanation. And then just to start it. And yeah, I think we tried, well, we, we made just some takes and and it was there. And yeah. kind of. It was a trio in the main room and then the two of us, uh, the guitar and the piano keyboards on another room. So it was like yeah. a quintet splitting by two. <laughs> yeah. yeah, you couldn't <laughs> see the way the studio is booked, uh, is set up. Um, I want to say that Miguel and I, and myself as a producer, always chose the method of producing where you choose the proper musicians and then you give them as much uh, leeway as possible for them to make their personal statement rather than the type of arranger, composer, or producer that's going to really specify exactly what parts they want played. We, and it's not because we couldn't, you know, a some of this music um, was all written out and printed out, uh, but it was really because we want that contribution. We want that creative contribution and we want to feel the way that the different players will influence each other in the moment. You know, what's going to come out from the, that fusion and the gestalt of what, what occurs, yeah. When you met in Germany, was the first time you'd all five been in the same place at the same time? Yep. That's, uh, that's I mean, kind of incredible. Did, did any of the tracks sort of uh, change, you know, once you, once you got in the studio? Did, were, were, there, were there ideas that, you know, now that you're kind of together, even though you're <laughs> split into two rooms, uh, were there situations where you, something just felt a little off and you changed it a little bit? Or, or were they pretty much what you had already decided in advance? It's a good one. I would say. Uh, go ahead, Miguel. You go? I would say that 
even though we have some basic ideas to play around, everything came out really fast and, and easy. Like if we had some arpeggios on the piano, that was a reference to start the piece, for instance. But, but there was not too much of a going deep because everyone felt it got it really like first take, two takes, three takes, and that, that's it. And it, all, the, all the takes were live. That means that once one take was over, we did another one, but rather instead of changing one instrument or, or anything like that. In the case, there is a, a specific uh, case, which is a trumpet in the boy that came afterwards. Yeah. And then he, he, he had a freedom to perform, but he needed a lot of guidance because the sound that Paul and I had in mind was really specific and he, he, he couldn't say like, oh, you know, so, so, so we ended up giving him some te technical uh, suggestions, but he played by himself. And then of course, in the production, the final production, that says like, okay, there's two notes here that are, you know, this, this, these two notes are not necessary. So, so in, it ended up being, uh, the, that's the only one that has ha, had some external production, but he was free to play whatever he, he, he was playing. And then he, he, we will guide him to something more close to what we had in mind. Uh, but the rest of the band was working, you know, uh, as a band. So the guest is the trumpet player in this case. What plays only one song, everything came out like uh, naturally, I would say. Yeah, but to the uh, to to Michael's question about whether something that we imagined or wrote beforehand and whether it changed in the studio, uh, mm. I guess I could say that, for example, there was a piece, there's a piece of uh, the fifth piece the fourth piece called Triggering the Triggering Town. Mm -hmm. And um, Miguel and I had recorded and released that on a Dogon record previously. Just it was mostly piano vocal with uh, very light uh, synthesis. And so in this case, we we felt like we wanted to hear it for this ensemble and see what happened to it. And so some things that happened were that we did a long improvisation related to, but not specific to the triggering town. And that piece really just developed organically in the studio. Mm -hmm. and it was a separate piece, but then, you know, after when we're listening to all the rough mixes and so forth, we started to realize we could create a kind of suite. So in fact, pieces uh, three, four, and five on the album are really part of a, a trilogy, a suite. And so one is this long improv that happened before, that's called a medium-sized village. And then the triggering town itself proper. And then following that became the bottom of the pond, which is this kind of quite uh, post-rock, sort of intense answer in a way to the triggering town. So those things, both those envelope pieces on either side of the triggering town were not uh, planned at all before the studio. So that's one answer. Tell me a little bit about this theme of nomadism and, and, and sort of how it influenced your, your work on this record. Miguel. <laughs> 
I've been having a nomadic state of uh, existence since 2013, but mostly from uh, 2016, when we came to Europe for the first time together, Paul and I. I think it was 2016, yes. Uh, so I've been living like most like the last year when when we started the record, like from, I came to Spain to, to give a workshop on July 2019, and then I stayed for the record, and then I never came back to the country, to Venezuela. It's impossible to return for me, for now. So, um, I would say that the nomadic state is not easy. So I guess there is a charge, a really emotional, strong, spiritual charge inside me, that for some reason touches Paul too. So I will say that he, he says that the record is influenced by this state of nomadic state. And it's interesting, we have been talking about it a lot. So, and that's the first song, which is the, I think that was the first idea we worked together, nomad, the song. So I, I would say, thank you, I would say that we hear different versions of nomadism. You hear a lot about digital nomads and people who are economically safe, but they're voluntarily choosing to live in different places all the time. And, you know, as a function of internet work and so forth, mm -hmm. um, that's great. And then we know, of course, the refugee stories from all over the globe people forced out of their countries looking for a better life, et cetera. But I think that uh, Miguel's situation is, is somewhat unique in that he is an artist, that's his livelihood. And he is from a country that's suffered a collapse. And so he is kind of a voluntary nomadic artist. So, so yeah. that might be more unusual. Yeah, and, and actually I'm very lucky because I've been having these collaborations that is taking me to different countries. So my when they ask me like, where, where, where are you living now? It's like, well, I'm living here because I'm in this project. So for now, like for instance, I'm in Berlin now. So by the way, Miguel is uh, busy doing, a, he's working with a theater uh, group. So he was not going to be able to be really like at this time because we are working together in Berlin. But before that, we, Paul and I got together in the United States late, like last, last year, uh, and the, at the end of the year, like October, October, something like that. And then I went and did a project with my brother. Uh, and so I'm moving as according to what the art is driving me to. And that's interesting, but it's also quite, uh, quite uh, lately I, I consider myself kind of like, uh, Jack Kerouac or something like that. <laughs> Just a joke for myself, you know, You're to keep myself to keep on going because it's not easy, and especially in a pandemic situation where before that was fun, but now it's quite in, it's complicated because I stay like I went to England in December and I spent all like three weeks locked in a place. <laughs> so I didn't go to England. I went to a room in England. Mm. Say about your children, though. Oh, I, oh, I was supposed to meet my children. I couldn't. Mm. The, so I Miguel just has there. three, three, three children in, in in England. All in England, and his sister in England, and he couldn't meet with any of them, and he was there for a month over Christmas. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, there's so, uh, unfortunately a lot of that going on. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, so but the, there was some art. So, so in the end, I I meet I met with some some people like the day before I left, <laughs> I could meet some people and then we we discussed a little bit of the uh, goals I had in mind for artistic collaborations there. So it wasn't a complete waste. <laughs> no, there's never a waste, you know, your yeah. life, there's any single moment when, when that you're breathing, it has a value. That's very true. I mean, it doesn't matter where you are. You have to keep on going. What is it about, or, or what, what particular challenges uh, does, it, does this type of music create for a musician that, that maybe other types of, you know, like rock and roll or whatever, uh, maybe don't don't have you guys all have a sort of a background in, in uh, you met, you mentioned king crimson but even king crimson the atmospheric uh, ambient uh, post rock whatever you want to call it I, I don't really i get distracted by labels but what uh, that's only a part of what they do what you know does this type of music have have you know challenges that that other types don't have for for you as an artist robert <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm considering this album. I have been thinking a lot about shamanism, really. Shamanism, because there are, shamanism. Yeah, because there are, it's like going through this album. And you recognize in some places it's kind of, uh, kind of uh, very odd culture coming in, which is not uh, so much Western at all. Mm, for for this region, for Estonia, it's maybe more familiar because Finns, Finland, they have the shamanism in the north more, and of course uh, east in Siberia. And uh, Miguel, I, I guess you know also <laughs> South America things. I, it's more common there, I guess. Yes, I'm not yes, sure about. Yes. I'm not not, not not so much sure about uh, the North America. But um, and this, this is something maybe which is not uh, so common for British Baroque stuff, mm. which, because they are more like a kind of intellectual, let's say, yeah. But the shamanism is not, not for me, actually, it's not intellectual, but, but it's a kind of uh, traveling with your mind somewhere, <laughs> who knows where. Mm -hmm. And making some, building some something which uh, create creating something which is really there. Hard to say. Hard to. I mean, is, is I it just more? My... Is it more about a, a mood or a feeling than it is about? Yeah. Notes and, it, and rhythms. Yeah, but it, the fact is that it, it disappears. In somewhere it is in the album, and then it disappears, and then comes back <laughs> there and back. And this is funny, I think, because. It's not just uh, one thing, but you you understand it if you're listening. That there's something different if you if you compare with other other groups, and uh, this is phenomenal for me. And I like I like this it's kind yeah. of something new, I like, fresh. I like what you're saying, Robert, uh, about shamanism because that's actually my go well, my one of my of the trends. And Paul also has this interest in. Uh, the shamanic way of connecting with nature, connecting with your heart rather than your, your yeah. brain. That's, that's the point. And shamanism is also 
uh, of course, in Siberia, but there's also in, uh, in North America, and there's in South America a lot, and in England, because there is this, uh, in, in UK, because there is this Druid stuff, mm. which is the Celtic, they're, they're into magic oh. too. And that's my blood. My blood is a mix of Venezuelan and Galician. It's, uh, it's Celtic. Yes. I, I think um, to add that perhaps though Crimson has come up, we're in a way a project like this is more influenced by something like Fripp and Eno collaboration, solo albums, or things like Gong or Steve Hillage or Robert Wyatt, which we've never mentioned, but yeah. But these ideas of, of um, creating a textural foundation, you know, and building some melodic ideas or vocal ideas or lyrical ideas on top of, or the ensemble interacting with lyrical, melodic or vocal ideas, I think it's a different animal than your classic progressive rock, which has to be written out. And, you know, the band has to know that they're going to change into 11.8 on bar 37. I mean, they have to know that. You can't, you know, there's no accidents gonna occur like that. So, yeah. 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 Paul, as a composer, what do you want the listener to take away from from this album when they get done with the listening experience? I think that's good because it allows me to bring back to the shamanism that these guys were talking about. And I didn't mean to just ignore that. Um, I think that the, the role of a shaman is to hold the space for an individual to have a transformation. <laughs> and so in this essence, we're creating sonic spaces and with some lyrical pointers um, for the listener to have some kind of transformation. Maybe introspection, I think, is quite important in the process, that there's something about the music that allows one, a listener, I hope, to look inward a little bit and uh, take that time and experience maybe some emotional currents. I think there's a lot of emotion on the record that's very subtle. And by listening, one can experience something there. The album is called Once Only. It's on New Dog Records. Is this already out? I wasn't clear on the release I received. Is this, has it already been released? This week, just two, two days ago. Okay. So you can get it now at uh, Amazon, all the, the usual spots. It's out there. Uh, we're <laughs> at Bandcamp and we're at Burning Shed, which is a worldwide distribution mm -hmm. from the UK, but uh, keeping really good company with Tim Boness and, and uh, a lot of progressive rock and stuff like that. And, um, and also now we're on Spotify and Apple Music, so you can stream it everywhere. Great. All right. The album, again, is called Once Only. The, the band's name is Eternal Return. Uh, Robert Paul, Miguel, thank you so much for your time. Appreciate it. Wish you the best of luck with this release. Thank you so much, Michael. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Bye-bye.
Michael's Record Collection is hosted and produced by Michael Citro. Logo graphic courtesy of Jerry Cutchins. Follow Michael's Record Collection on social media, at Mike's Records on Twitter, Michael's Record Collection on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. For the free newsletter version, subscribe at substack.com and just type Michael's Record Collection into the search bar. Thanks for listening.